Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I hope you're safe. I hope you're still wearing your mask. I hope you're making your kids, if you have any, wear their masks. I hope you're telling your local schools to require masks. I hope you're urging your local health department to mandate masks. If you're in a country where this isn't even an issue... I envy you. Uh, the start of the school year would be a lot less stressful if this entire pandemic hadn't become so political here. And if you're in Haiti or Afghanistan, I hope that you're safe. Truly, I wish I had a magic wand that would allow me to fix everything. But since I don't have a magic wand, I'll try to provide a few minutes of escapism since we all need some respite from all of the disasters, too. Today, we have the next chapter of the Bibliotheca. We're up to chapter one of book two, and it is not nearly as long as the last chapter we read. Again, I'm using the Fraser translation, which is easily accessible online. We've finished talking about Deucalion's family, so now we're going to talk about Inakus's family. Seriously, that's how this chapter starts. <laughs> Inakus is the son of Ocean and Tethys. He even has a river in Argos named after him. Uh, with his half-sister, uh, Melia, Inakus has two sons, Phoreneus and Aegialius. Aegialius dies childless, so they named the country after him, Aegialia, obviously. Phoreneus, on the other hand, rules the Peloponnese, but it doesn't have that name yet. His children are Apis and Niobe. Their mom is a nymph named Teledike. Apis decides the Peloponnese should be called Apia, but he is a stereotypical tyrant and gets killed by uh, Thelxion and Telchus. Apis also doesn't have children, but he does become a god named Sarapis. Sarapis. Niobe, on the other hand, has a son named Argus. His father is none other than Zeus himself. Apparently, Niobe has the distinction of being the first mortal woman Zeus cohabits with. That's the word in this translation, which is an interesting choice for what was likely not a consensual relationship. But maybe. I just don't see Hera letting Zeus go down to Earth and play house with Niobe. Anyway, Akusilos uh, says they also have a son named Pelasgus, which is where the Pelasgians get their name. But Hesius Hesiod says Pelasgus is a son of the earth, so it all depends on who you ask, and this author will come back to him later. Argus next inherits the kingdom on the Peloponnese. Sorry, my script moved on me. <laughs> Argus next inherits the kingdom on the Peloponnese, so he renames it Argos. He marries Evadne, and their children are Echabasus, Prius, Epidaurus, and Creasus. Echabasus' son is Agenor, and Agenor's son is also named Argus, and this is the Argus you may have heard of before. He is the all-seeing because he has eyes all over his body. He's kind of like Heracles, only with more eyes. He spends much of his time at revenge. He kills a cattle thief, Satyr, and Echidna, and the men who killed Apis. Argus and Ismene have a son named Iasus, who may be the father of Io, unless she was the daughter of Inakus, or maybe Pyrrhon. It all depends on who you ask. What you do need to know is that she catches Zeus's eye, and you know how Zeus is. And if you know how Zeus is, you also know how Hera is. 
Kira, of course, blames Io for Zeus's behavior. Zeus tries to do the right thing and protect Io by turning her into a cow and insisting that he never touched her. Kira sees right through this and asks Zeus to give her that pretty white cow as a gift, which he has to because otherwise he thinks she'll know that he knows that she knows what he did. Hera sets Argus the All-Seeing to guard her. Of course, this Argus might have different parentage. Again, it all depends on who you ask. Anyway, Argus ties Io the cow to an olive tree and keeps watch. Zeus again tries to do the right thing and rescue Io. He sends Hermes to do it. Hermes manages to kill Argus, which is why Hermes is sometimes called Argifantes, but he isn't able to do it quietly, so Hera notices. And that's why Hera sends a gadfly to pester Io and chase her all over the Mediterranean world until she finally reaches Egypt. Magically, Io then turns back into a human and gives birth to Epiphus. Hera sends the Curetes to kidnap him, which they do. Zeus learns that the Curetes kidnapped his son, so he kills the Curetes. Meanwhile, Io goes searching for her child. She wanders back to the east, ending up in Syria, where it turns out the queen is nursing Io's baby. Io takes her son and goes back to Egypt, where she marries Telegonus, who was Pharaoh. And Io brings the worship of Demeter to the Egyptians, which kind of makes sense given the parallels between Io's search for her son and Demeter's, Demeter's search for her daughter. Only the Egyptians don't call her Demeter, they call her Isis, and they start calling Io Isis, too. Epiphus marries Memphis, whose dad is the Nile, and together they found the city of Memphis. Their daughter is Libya, and you can probably guess what was named after her. Libya has twins, twins named Agenor and Belus. Their dad is Poseidon. Agenor goes to Phoenicia and stays there, so we're not going to talk about him anymore. But Belus stays in Egypt. He marries Ankinoe, another of Nile's daughters, and they also have twins whose names may sound familiar, Egyptus and Danaeus. If you ask Euripides, they also have Cepheus and Phineas. Danaeus settles in Libya and Egyptus in Arabia. They both have 50 children. Egyptus has 50 sons, and Danaeus has 50 daughters. Are you starting to remember this story from Greek tragedy? Egyptus and Danaeus start arguing, and Danaeus is worried about what Egyptus will do, so he builds a ship, boards it with his 50 daughters, and sails to Argos. Gelinor, the king of Argos, surrenders to Danaeus, and so Danaeus becomes king, which is why the people there are known as Danaeans. There is a little problem with this land, though. Poseidon has cursed it because he felt slighted by Anakus, so there's no water. Danaeus has to send his daughters to draw water, which they do. One of them decides to do a little hunting, and she accidentally shoots a satyr when she was aiming for a deer. But Poseidon is impressed, so he shows her where to find water. Nonetheless, the 50 sons of Egyptus do follow Danaeus to Argos and force him to let them marry his daughters. They pick their wives by drawing lots. I will spare you the list of each pairing. You can read it if you want to. While the brothers are busy deciding who gets to marry which sister, Danaeus gives his daughters daggers, which they then use to kill their new husbands. Well, except for Hypermenestra, because Lynceus is the only one of the 50 brothers to know what consent means and how to behave if a woman says no. They have a big funeral, and then Athena and Hermes purify the women of their crime. Danaeus then has a proper wedding for Hypermenestra and Lynceus and gives the rest of his daughters to the men who win in an athletic contest, so they still don't get any say in who they wind up married to. 
Amenemy has a son named Naplius. His dad is also Poseidon. He lived a really long time as a pirate until some other pirates get him. But before that, he marries Clymene. Or maybe Philera. Unless he marries Hesione. Whoever his wife is, his children are Palamedes, Oeax, and now Simidion. And that's the end of the chapter. And I'd say we'll pick up with this story in the next chapter, but we won't. That's pretty much all the author has to say on the topic of Amimini, which is really too bad because I think that would be a lot of a lot of fun to, to know more about Amimini and Naplius and, and this being a pirate. Anyway, women have it really rough in this chapter. Okay, women tend to get it rough throughout Greek mythology, but in this chapter we have poor Io, whose lot in life just keeps getting worse, and then we have the Danaids, who go from terrible to still not that great, and then they get punished in the after afterlife, you know, which obviously is not covered in this in this particular telling, but still, we know that from other sources. Perhaps Hypermnestra is content with her husband, um, but he's still the man who won her through gambling, and the rest of her sisters become prizes in an athletic contest, and yet they're the ones who will be cursed in the underworld. It's so, so unfair. So what are your thoughts on the various stories covered in today's chapter? Pop over to the blog and share. It's at triumvircleo.school.blog. The URL is in the show notes. And the link to my Patreon is there too, should you feel so inclined. In the next episode, we will wrap up the Roman comedy course. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.